Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nathalie Caldera, who is a clinical psychologist and practices in New York. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thanks, Michelle. It's exciting to be here, and it's a great honor to join you today. Yeah, thanks for making time in your busy schedule. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. course. So today our topic is managing our mental health in crisis conditions. I don't have to let you know, you know, tell you about the crisis we're in. We all know we're buried in the um, COVID-19 pandemic, and we're all trying to cope the best we can. So we're going to just, you know, our conversation today will be centered around managing our mental health. So let's get to know Natalie a little better. Natalie, tell us about you. Who is Natalie Caldera? Sure. So I was born in Guyana, um, and I'm the daughter of Leona and Charles Caldera. They are both lifelong teachers. We immigrated as a family 32 years ago, and I've lived most of those years in Brooklyn, uh, New York. I'm a mother, a wife, a sister, a cousin, a friend, and I'm also trained as a clinical psychologist and licensed in New York and in New Jersey. And five years ago, I started a group private practice in New York City. And we are, we have moved from just me to now 22 mental health professionals. Wow. And, um, yeah, of course, um, it's been very busy and chaotic, <laughs> but, um, you know, busy is good at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. just so the audience would know, Natalie and I share a common heritage and yeah. I too was born in Guyana and, um, we went to the same high school. Went to the same. I was a little ahead of Natalie, just a few, <laughs> a few years. And my mom was my mom is, was an, is a retired educator, so she started teaching in Guyana as well. And we are mm-hmm. immigrants who moved to New York um, wow. yeah. in '84. However many years that is now, I lose track of time. Yeah. So we have a very similar um, heritage. So. And I met Natalie through, I think we, I don't know if I'm, I don't remember you from school, but I know we met through volunteering, giving back to our high school. So. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I do remember um, you from school, from high school, you know, the younger ones always looked up to the older ones, (laughs) um, you know, and I feel like we were a pretty small community. So Mm -hmm. I do remember everyone that came before me. (laughs) So how did you choose your career? How did you end up as a clinical psychologist with a practice, um, a significant practice of 22 um, psychologists and staff? That, That sounds, that's very impressive. How did you get to this point? Um, Well, I would say the foundations, of course, are my parents and my grandparents. And um, except for my father, nobody um, 
not my grandparents or my mom have a college degree, but they instilled in me, you know, a drive and a determination and just, um, you know, to focus on education. And um, I'm the oldest of five. So also, you know, got very early lessons on how to be a caretaker and organized. And so I believe those are the foundations. And then I attended Brooklyn College and I started out actually a business management and finance major. But then uh, in my second year, I took a course called Psychology of Women. We had a wonderful professor whose focus was on community service. And um, she also focused on politics in a way that taught us that the personal is political. And so she made sure that we all volunteered in the community as part of our coursework. And then I later worked with her as well at a summer camp in upstate New York. And um, that camp provided services to children who were living in New York City, but got to spend the summer living away from their abusive homes. And I found that experience extremely rewarding. Part of it was that it also reminded me, like the green, the space, log cabins, it reminded me of Guyana. So I really enjoyed that experience, came back and changed my major to psychology. And um, that's what I've been doing ever since. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So how has the pandemic affected your practice? So I would say we, you know, so we've definitely switched 100% to teletherapy Mm -hmm. and um, no longer obviously able to use our offices. We're in the the heart of the pandemic here in New York City. And so for us, it's actually been relatively easy because New York actually had telehealth uh, law in place since 2016. A lot of states did not have such a law. In fact, probably only about 22 states have that law before the pandemic in place. So we were actually practicing teletherapy for people who were sick or who were traveling already. Um, But of course, it was restricted to New York because um, it applied only to people licensed in New York. So it was relatively easy to switch 100% to teletherapy because we'd already been doing it. We already had like a secure video platform that we were using. Um, We, of course, you know, I think for everyone, all of the clinicians and the patients, it was definitely an adjustment and continues to be an adjustment. Um, But we've continued to keep working. We've, we're very grateful that we're able to continue working and helping people that, you know, we've spent our whole lives training to do. That's good. Have you seen an uptick in the number of um, patients? So what we would, uh, what we've experienced is I would say in the first two weeks, we actually did not get any new phone calls because I think that people were in such shock um, about what was happening. And I think after the first two weeks, we have gotten an increase in phone calls, but it's not been as 
many as we were experiencing before. And I would say there are a lot of factors for that. Like people are still, I think, somewhat in a state of shock where we're experiencing a collective traumatic experience. And what we know about trauma is that people want to wait until they feel safe enough before they make big decisions. And oftentimes seeking mental health treatment is a big decision for people. People are also experiencing job loss and insurance loss as a result. And so this also limits their ability to pay for such services. Uh, People may be also fearful that they're going to lose their job and so they're more conservative with their finances. People, I believe in New York City especially, are living in tiny apartments, sometimes now with multiple roommates or family members, young children. And so one of the hallmarks of mental health treatment is privacy. And so if you're in a you know, situation, living situation where it's hard to have privacy, people are putting off these services. What I would say has happened and we've seen is that the people who were in treatment previously have actually asked to meet a lot more times. So typically people were meeting, you know, on average once a week. Mm -hmm. And some of those people have asked to meet twice a week um, during this time. Okay, interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned that we're going through, um, we're all being traumatized by, by this, whether we're, we're in New York or not. Are we all going to have like a collective post-traumatic stress <laughs> um, experience in whenever this calms down? It's true that we are experiencing a collective traumatic experiences here. Um, and what I would say, it's the same as, what people normally experience when um, most people are pretty resilient, right? And so everybody may have a reaction, but it may not be a reaction that then affects their ability to be productive or ability to function well in their relationships. Um, So what we know from the research is that about 10% of people will have more severe reactions where it does affect those things. It does affect your work. It does affect your ability to function well in your relationships. You do maladaptive things like using more alcohol or substances. Your anxiety levels may increase or run out of control. Um, so I would not say that everybody is going to uh, be diagnosed with PTSD after this, but I would say that you do want, everybody does want to, you know, monitor how much anxiety they're experiencing, whether or not it's increasing and sustained and the level at which um, that might be and, you know, to get help if needed. The pandemic is affecting people of color at a higher rate than, than others. Yes. And I know we, we are all aware um, that getting treatment for mental wellness, getting mental health support um, has been taboo in, in, in communities of color. 
Why do you think this that is? Why do you think this this whole taboo exists? What have you seen in your studies? Sure. So there's definitely a stigma, and I would say this is across the world, but more pronounced in some countries than others. So this idea that emotional distress means that you're weak or that, you know, it's a defect in your character. Um, So this has been something that's been pretty persistent. It is slowly changing and which is great because a lot more people are talking about their own struggles with Mm -hmm. mental health and a lot more people are writing about it and now because of technology we have a lot more sources of information um i think that compared to the hard sciences another factor is that psychology is a relatively new science and so the research is still developing, you know, what we know about the effects of trauma, for example, we're still um, learning. And so, for example, you know, in terms of just to put it in perspective, we know that the diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was not actually in the DSM, which we call the Diagnostic Bible in Uh, psychology and psychiatry until 1980. So that's, you know, only 40 years ago. And when they, you know, put that um, there, it was actually mostly based on research for people who were coming back from war zones. So it's only been more recently that we're learning the effects of interpersonal violence. So the experiences of childhood abuse, physical, sexual on uh, children, and also, you know, witnessing or experiencing other kinds of interpersonal trauma. We're just um, beginning to learn what the effects of those are, and then what kinds of interventions are most effective. Um, I would say another factor, and this is more relevant to um, here in the U.S., is you know a level of distrust for um, public health professionals, I think specifically, but broadly medical professionals, where in the 1930s there is um, a study that was done where, called the Tuskegee uh, syphilis study, mm-hmm. where they, uh, the US government enrolled African-American men in a study without getting their informed consent. And they also, during that study, withheld treatment when it became available. The government also did this kind of study in Guatemala in the 40s. And I think that collectively these kinds of experiences, um, which were very, um, you know, it caused physical Mm -hmm. harm and debt to people. And so understandably, these kinds of unethical practices created a lot of distrust of uh, medical professionals in our communities. And so um, I think that that's another factor in why people have been reluctant to engage. Yeah. 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 So as we, um, you know, all live through this crisis, what impact of like what 
how how does a crisis impact one's mental wellness? What can we all um, expect to experience? How can the crisis impact our mental wellness? Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, it's a great question because I think the, the most important step is to really acknowledge like how you're being affected, right? So I would say that definitely what we all know is that there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty around our health, around finances, around stability of our jobs, there's a tremendous amount of questions about when will this end? How is isolation affecting us? Um, or we're being, lots of people are being challenged by, you know, being in the same household, not being able to move around a lot um, with people, you know, and even when they're close family members, you're not used to spending all of this time together and so that presents its own challenges. So we might expect that people are, as a result, also going to experience a lot of um, sleep problems. People may be increasing their alcohol use or other substances. So we want to watch for that. And then, of course, the thing that's right in front of us, the tremendous amount of grief and loss that some people are experiencing personally and others more vicariously through watching the news. Oh gosh, um, they can yeah. suck you in. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, the thing is, it's like we want to know, we want to confirm, we want to reduce some of that uncertainty. And I think that that's um, a great goal, but continuously watching the news is not a way to do it. <laughs> I know, it just pulls you in and over and over yeah. and over. Yeah, I think I, I'm. I'm assuming just probably just overeating. I'm sure just being at home, um, and and the big rush on on groceries and everyone's baking. It seems. Like. Yes, yes, yes. That can't be any good. <laughs> that can't be too healthy. Yeah. So I would say, like, in addition to watching your sleep habits, like practicing sleep hygiene that you want to practice, you know, nutrition, you know, going back to basics, like hydrating, what you would normally do, pay attention to eating, you know, fruits and vegetables and reducing the sugar and flour. <laughs> I know, <laughs> which is what which is hard, which is hard. Through, yeah. yeah, which is hard. And, you know, I mean, I think, of course, integrating as much as you can. I mean, it's very limited right now what a lot of people can do, but if you can to integrate exercise, um, which I know is challenging for a lot of people, but, um, and I do believe that these things are easy to say, right? Uh, Very easy to say, but hard to practice and maintain. I would say that you should not be afraid to ask for help whether it's by a friend to keep you accountable, uh, family members to keep you accountable. Because what we know is that if we look, for example, at professional athletes, so they all have a coach, right? And the coach- And a dietitian and everything. Exactly. And so why shouldn't you have the same thing? So you can simulate that 
by getting your friends together, getting uh, colleagues together, and you shouldn't feel like you should have to, you know, get these habits together all on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you know, because we're all going to be affected by it in some way. Yes. How do we know whether it's a serious mental illness or whether we're just down because of the pandemic or we're just kind of in a bad mood? How do we know the difference between serious mental illness and just maybe just being down because of the pandemic? Right. So great question. So just in general, how we know um, whether something needs professional help versus we can, you know, seek out counsel from friends and family or, you know, work on it through self-help activities. I do all though advocate for being proactive. So even if you're experiencing low levels of anxiety, low levels of sadness or um, sleep problems, more increased use of alcohol or other substances, that you want to pay attention to it. And when we know that it is a disorder, it's usually when they're more severe symptoms. So severe anxiety, severe sadness, severe loss of interest in things that you used to enjoy, uh, more thoughts and problems, concentrating, focusing, that they persist over a long time. And the critical piece is how you know it's a disorder is that it affects your work or your relationships, or you yourself are experiencing a high level of distress as a result of these things. Um, But again, I would advocate that and and say that most people will will experience some increase in anxiety at this time. The key to watch out for is whether or not it will persist and then affect your ability to work, ability to be productive, ability to you know, maintain healthy relationships. Okay, okay. So, and, and I think you, you've touched on some strategies already. What are some coping strategies mm-hmm. that you recommend for this time yeah. as, we, we, as we deal with? So I can't stress enough, and I know I've said this before, but sleep hygiene is so critical at this time because it does regulate everything else. Your mood, it helps to, you know, if you're having um, difficulty regulating eating habits, uh, exercise habits, sleep is like the foundation of all of that. So I would say- How much say, sleep should we get, yeah. Yes, exactly, how much sleep you get. And, you know, for some people, six hours is enough to feel rested, but for most people, it's seven or eight hours. And so you want to keep a regular bedtime. You want to turn off your devices, that light, a couple of hours prior to bedtime, reduce alcohol use, because a lot of people think that alcohol um, helps with sleep, but it actually does help with sleep in the 
in the short term, but over the long term, it actually interferes with the sleep cycle. So you do want to monitor your alcohol use. I would say another key strategy is to keep a notepad by your bedside because a lot of people are continuously worrying about many different things, whether it's work or your children or your parents or, you know, um, what's going to happen two weeks from now, two months from now. And if it's not an emergency, it doesn't have to be resolved right away. Write it down and you could deal with it tomorrow. But the, the act of writing it down actually gets it out of your head for the moment. And then you can comfortably go to sleep. Um, I would say if you're, you have access to guided meditations, um, any kind of stretching exercise, and being aware of your thinking patterns. So a lot of people, you know, are unaware of how much anxiety they have and how much negative thinking that they're engaging in, right? So I, I think that it's important to sort of not dismiss those things that you want to address them as they occur. So one great example of like a brain hack that you can use and practice for anxiety. So, you know, you know that now everybody's worried about touching their face because obviously that is uh, a site of transmission. And so one thing you want to practice is monitoring what your anxiety level is usually, right? So I usually tell people, practice on a scale of one to 10 when your anxiety is increasing. And let's say, you know, you touch your face and you're worried about it. You want to say like, um, I know how quickly my own anxiety rises when something like, when I worry about something like that. And one thing that you can quickly do is to remember that you can reduce your own anxiety, that you're in control of reducing your own anxiety. So something like being aware and practicing, oh, wait a minute, I washed my hand, you know, two seconds ago. Immediately, you can feel some relief. So just, so the point is, is, you know, being aware that anxiety is present and is likely to increase at any moment of the day, but that you can do things yourself that can reduce your own anxiety in the moment. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. terms of one, one, one thing I was thinking of uh, as you yeah. uh, shared the strategies, what about spirituality? You know, you know um, people who are, um, who are people of faith, Yes. I, I'm assuming that that too should be a coping strategy in terms of our mental health, correct? Absolutely. So if this is something that um, you practice and experience as, you know, very helpful for you, praying, um, some people would say that praying is a form of meditation and definitely very meaningful to people who believe. So definitely keeping up with your routines, 
even though you may not be able to do that in person. So a prayer schedule, getting together via video or phone with your fellow church members are very important because they do offer you know, a tremendous and meaningful source of support. Um, so yeah, definitely um, yeah. continuing with those uh, routines is important. As much as possible, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, as we look to the future, um, how do you think the pandemic will change the mental health care system in the U.S.? Um, well, I'm hoping that teletherapy will become as normal as in-person visits, that they will be something especially available to people who would not normally have access to so people in rural areas, people Absolutely. in countries that have a shortage of mental health professionals. So I'd like to see that expansion. And along with that, the expansion of licensing across states and across um, countries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So definitely, uh, I'd like to see those changes. I'd like to see mental health professionals, but I, I think this is everybody as well. So going back to what I learned from my professor, uh, Nancy Romer, like all early in my college career, that the personal is political, that we have to be a lot more engaged politically, all of us, to make the changes that we want to see. So for example, what we're seeing with this pandemic is that your health affects mine and my health affects yours. And so it's important to see making changes um, is very important for the entire community. And in order to do that, we have to not be so self-focused, like you change, make your changes over there, you make your changes over here. We need to be more deliberate in our collective efforts to making changes in healthcare, in education. Um, and that I think requires more political engagement. Yeah, definitely. I think just, yeah. Just being able to be more uh, civically engaged when you see things that are going on and really taking a stand, whether you're directly affected or not. I think just, just standing up for your, your brother or sister who may be going through is just so, so important. But it would be fabulous to be able to have telehealth say to Guyana. Wouldn't that be something? Yes. That would be, yes. that would be oh my gosh. Yes. That would be transformative. And I think it's really possible now because yeah. it's, um, I've been volunteering in Guyana for the past five years mm -hmm. with a local NGO there, mm -hmm. and they help people who um, experience traumatic experiences. So children who've been raped, molested, physically abused, they provide counseling services, and they also help the parents to manage um, through those experiences. Mm -hmm. And of course, all of the services are in person, but I, they do actually already do some of the training via video mm -hmm. and hopefully uh, they can continue to do that, but also to add providing services 
in the outlying areas via video um, and more people will have access, yeah. Absolutely. So as we, as we wind down um, our conversation. Wow, really, really fast. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, I'm always about inspiring young people to pursue uh, a career. Yes. Uh, what is the prevalence of um, people of color in, in psychotherapy and what can we do to inspire others to pursue this career? Sure. Uh, so it's pretty bleak. We are, you know, the, it's about 4% African-American psychologist in the United States, wow. about 5% Asian, about 5% Hispanic, and about 1% multiracial. Mm -hmm. So, you know, interestingly enough, in the 70s, and this is true in the medical field as well, they were graduating more physicians and psychologists than they are today. So something has gone wrong with the entire system of training new professionals. And this is why I am convinced that we do have to become a lot more political because it requires paying attention to systemic change versus individual changes. So I think that uh, focusing on teach what I would say for me the benefits of being a psychologist is the flexibility that I've gotten from all of my training mm -hmm. I've been able to work as a researcher as a clinician I can teach if I would like I can and now I am leading a group of clinicians so the flexibility that a career like this gives you is something that you can look forward to. And, you know, I would say, I would recommend the same path that I took, which is take a class, do some volunteer work, do a summer job in the field and see if it's something that you like. It can inspire you. It's very rewarding and can inspire you to, make changes that you know you want to see yeah 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 so what, what what gives you hope i know we we are dealing in very you know yeah. tragic times and the death toll from the pandemic is astronomical and mm -hmm. on and on and on what gives you hope so i go back to my homeland right i would say that um Guyana has experienced, you know, we're part of this that experienced massive brain drain. So upwards of 80 to 90% of skilled and educated individuals and families have left the country. But I am constantly impressed and inspired by the young people who are continuing to educate themselves, who are continuing to dream, who are continuing to build and work, and they're getting things done. So if they can do that in such an environment, then we should be doing all that we can to help and collaborate with them to build that definitely is what gives me hope and continues to energize me. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They are our future. They are our, our heritage. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. I appreciate you for making time for this uh, conversation and I wish you all the best in, uh, in your career and um, just keep making us proud. Thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, stay safe and healthy and make sure everyone to consult with a professional if you have questions. I usually say Google and Facebook articles are not, you know, do not have all the answers. <laughs> so, you know, I, one thing I think that's really been great is that we've been seeing on TV and across media a lot more of scientists and professionals. And I hope that the young people are paying attention because now, you know, those can be sources and models for them. Absolutely. That was Managing Our Mental Health in Crisis Conditions with Dr. Natalie Caldera. Be sure to check out the other episodes in the Health Solution Series of Fostering Solutions. Thank you so much for listening.